If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. I'm happy to have one of our previous guests back today on Horse Chats, Wayne Hipsley. You can go back to horsechats.com and search for Wayne Hipsley and have a listen to his previous episode. I think you'll be delighted about his background, the amount of information he's able to give to you. But before we do that, I want to introduce you to Sophie Barrington and Archer Creative, who are our sponsors for this episode. Sophie's a specialist in equine business marketing, and she can help you with websites, design and social media marketing. If you'd like to learn a little bit more about Sophie, you can go and listen to her episodes on horsechats.com, search for Sophie, search for Barrington or search for Archer Creative and her contact details will be on a page as well. Meanwhile, back to Wayne. Wayne, how are you today? I'm well, thank you. I'm well and I hope it's the same with you. It is. It is, Wayne. And great to talk to you. Now, you've got 10 ways to decrease your risks in horse business. And I know you've got a big background in decreasing risks and helping horse business owners as an equine consultant. And I know that you do it internationally, Wayne, but just tell us this particular subject, 10 ways to decrease your risks in the horse business. I'm going to ask you a question. Is horse business a risky business? I think it's just like any other business. And the, the the answer is you need to do your homework before you decide to become involved in it as a business. Yep. You know, and I'm going to use a phrase like you shouldn't quit, quit your day job, you know, type thing until you really have this up and running, that you have a plan, a strategy, and, and an opportunity to to perhaps even uh, explore some options that uh, can demonstrate that you are um, able to generate an income because most people start their businesses uh, as their sole source of income. And so uh, it, I think it becomes important that you know, people just be really uh, – very, very factual about what they're dealing with and the hard facts of how difficult it could be planning for the worst and expecting the best, you know? Yep, yep, yep. And I like the way that you said don't quit your day job because you don't need to. You know, the horse business works on the weekends and is very flexible so you can still keep your full-time job and start your horse business on the side. And by the time you're sort of doing well within your horse business, you can afford then to drop your other job because you're already doing well within the horse business. Well, that, that's so true, and, and it is. I mean, I judge a lot of horse shows and participate in many educational clinics and seminars, and uh, I work Friday, Saturday, Sundays, if you will, yep. and as do many other clinicians and people that are involved with educational programs uh, because that's when the business of horses is uh, conducted for those purposes. So 
you, you know, you need to be able to look at that. And that's an important part of being able to target your time. And the other thing that I think that's important, and may be a bit premature to talk about it now, but I think it's important that you, you still have to have a personal life. And if you do this 24-7, 365, you're going to find that you're not going to be uh, doing much for yourself on a personal basis. And you've got to be able to divide your time and use your time wisely, both in your personal life as well as your professional life. Mm, mm. The types of horse businesses that we're dealing with. Do you want to just run through? Because I think horse businesses have just expanded. Anything related to the horse, the horse has grown in popularity. It continues to grow in popularity. And the types of jobs within the horse industry are growing. The types of businesses that are related to horses are growing. And if you want to just spend a couple of minutes, because we're talking about decreasing your risks in the horse business, and I know a lot of the strategies are going to be specific for horse businesses. Can you tell us just, you know, run through a list even of the different types of businesses you'd be talking about? Sure. And I and I think we need to put a lot of them in a similar basket, so to speak, as we talk about. Mm. But to put together a list and... and uh, um, it's certainly not a complete list, but it hits many of the, the high points, and that is that whether you are operating a breeding farm, regardless of what the breed is, whether it's a, a popular breed uh, of horse that's uh, used for uh, English or Western riding, or even some people that are breeding miniatures or ponies. You know, use them for driving and that type of thing. But the breeding farm can certainly be a business if it's conducted properly. The other is a, a training or show stable, regardless of the discipline. And training stables, show stables uh, in many parts of the world uh, are and can be very successful businesses if managed. And usually uh, those operations are uh, multifaceted so that you're just not doing or performing one task for your client, but you're performing many, such as offering to board their horse um, on your premises and then moving into the next level of opportunity, perhaps a lesson program or expanding into trekking or some type of activity like that so that you're offering multiple services once they bring their horse to your stable for training or boarding. And the other one, as we see all over as well, is uh, the race, whether it be standard breads or thoroughbreds. Um, we, we see a number of people who have entered into that. And one of the things that's always fascinated me about Australia and New Zealand both is how many people are in partnerships and own resources. They're not necessarily owned by big farms, but they're uh, small farm operators that are involved in it. So racing in itself, regardless of what breed, becomes critical uh, as, a, as a defined business from my point of view. The other thing uh, that I see and not as prominent as it used to be, but teaching people how to drive 
and participate in carriage competition. Even at the FEI level, I'm lucky to be here in Lexington, Kentucky, and see driving competitions. Uh, we don't see the number of people participating there, but that doesn't mean you can't make it into a business because what we're seeing is, is that there are a number of able people that really are at a point in their life where they would just as soon drive a horse as opposed to their ability to riding the horse may have diminished over a period of time. The other areas that, you know, kind of come into play is the disabled riding centers. They're a business. Even though they may be a nonprofit, they still have to be run as a business. And that's sometimes difficult for people to understand, but they need many of the same skills used in all the other uh, types of businesses that we've talked about uh, to sustain themselves. Then moving on into uh, horse transportation is is an enterprise that some people attempt to conduct a business, although there are national firms in both uh, Australia and New Zealand, which I'm aware of, there are occasionally people that um, think that that may be an area that they venture into. Event management, uh, every place I've ever traveled involving the horse business, event management is, pardon me, is huge. And, and it takes professional staff to put together many of the events that we see today and conduct them in a profitable and safe, risk-free manner. Events and facilities. There's some folks that have invested time and money to preparing a facility for holding horse shows or some type of competitions. And as a result of it, uh, those become an, a, a good opportunity to be a multifaceted uh, business that's associated with horses. Um, we have a gentleman near us that has uh, covered arenas and outdoor arenas, and it's extremely difficult, for example, to, to book a weekend with him for a horse show because he just has that much business uh, and interest in people coming to his facility and using it. Farriers, uh, huge business regardless of what anybody uh, thinks. There are a lot of folks that think, well, they can shoot their own horses or trim their own horses' feet, but a professional career is definitely a legitimate career in business, in my opinion. Likewise, we're seeing an increase in um, massage therapists and other types of therapy entering into the horse business today. Some of it, I think, at one point, Glennis, was probably more hocus-pocus than anything, but uh, as science has advanced, we're starting to see some significant results of horses that are being treated by therapists other than veterinarians and uh, being successful in you know, keeping those horses healthy. Not to take away from the, the role of a veterinarian in the care and welfare of the animals. It, I have seen a lot of folks uh, attempt to get into the tack and saddle business, and this is something that um, 
amazes me about the capital investment that's necessary with doing that. But it takes a, a great deal of energy to drive that business because it's based on any other type of retail in advertising or that's associated with advertising and retaining customers, expanding customer bases, and that sort of thing. The feed and hay business, and I know there's a terrible shortage of hay in your country today in many areas, but those providers or those businesses are definitely essential in providing the average horse owner or any horse owner the uh, necessary nutrients that are, you know, to sustain their horses. The other one, and you mentioned about Sophie the, in the beginning here, yes. um, the media and publications. Um, I met her several years ago, and and I know uh, how she has focused her career on dealing with media and publications. Mm. That's critical. That's an important business, and yes. in my opinion, because... You've got to get your word out that you're in business. We used to talk about hanging out a shingle, meaning you, you know you'd you'd put a sign out saying I am a farrier or I am a horse trainer or whatever, you know. And and you need people that understand that, especially in today's world. In my opinion, there's a lot more than just uh, having a Facebook page, and uh, there needs to be a strategy associated with it. And so professional services uh, such as media dealing with media and publication certainly come into uh, into play. Mm. Uh, we could go on with that. But oh, I, don't think got, I think that's yeah, what you said there is really good. And I think what's happened too is we've started to look at not just the one track, you know, I'm going to get a job in the horse industry or I'm going to have a horse industry business, but there's so many complementary businesses, you know, people who specialise in the horse industry, you know, like Sophie and Archer Creative specialising. She says, right, on media and publications, but I specialise within the horse industry because that's her background. Right. Another thing you said about the advancement in science, that it's a lot more proven now and people have actually got to be qualified to be massage therapists or acupuncturists or those complementary skills are complementary to to veterinary skills. And some vets go out and say, right, well, I do veterinary and I also do this or or other people come in as specialised. So um, I think this is going to appeal to a broad range of people. And I do want to get started on it soon. You know, I just want to give people a bit of a background. But before we start, what sort of risks are we talking about that we need to reduce? Well, I think uh, number one, the number one issue is financial failure. Yep, yep. And I think that's the same as any business, isn't it? Yeah, it doesn't matter what business it is. Mm -hmm. Um, The other one that puts you at risk is natural disasters. And you're experiencing that right now in Australia with the droughts in many areas of the country. Because if your pastures dry up, you have the inability to purchase hay or whatever, that's going to strain your budgets. It's going to strain your ability to generate income. The other is uh, the, the third area that I uh, feel is important is the issue dealing with accidents and injuries in dealing in many different phases of this um, where you have to be properly insured and not depend on, well, I'm going to 
to get through this month, and then next month I'm going to buy insurance or take some sort of strange philosophy like that. I mean, you have to have that protection from the get-go, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, safe conditions in the working place, because if you're in business, uh, even on a breeding farm or in a race stable, like we talked about earlier, those create problems or potential problems where it could affect the longevity of your business. The other one is litigation due to negligence. And uh, it, this just points to the fact that it becomes important for people to be do their research, understand that they have a professional responsibility when they're dealing with the public, and that negligence cannot be tolerated. Mm. And one of the other items that's, that comes into play is deals with your reputation. No matter what anyone says, your reputation becomes an important part of whatever product or service you're associated with. If you're selling tack and saddlery goods, uh, that type of business, and you're buying and reselling poor quality products, that word will get out. Don't go there and buy from them because their products always fall apart or there's some other scenario that's associated with it. And so your business has the potential of failing just from that type of uh, situation. Mm. So, I mean, we can go on, but that's those are the key issues that come to mind. Yep, yep. All right. So I think we've got the challenge preserving professional integrity and developing a viable horse business. Okay. What else, Wayne, just before we start on the first management strategy, I think we've, we've covered a bit of background here, which I think is important, you know, so people can say, right, well, this really is for me. There's going to be a fair bit in this. And, and I think even for the, the person who is not necessarily a business owner, but they've got, um, they've got their own horses and it might be more of a hobby, but I think there's, there's going to be information in here that they should be listening to as well. Anything else that we need to talk about before we start the first management strategy? No, I mean, I think there's just a couple of points. We have to realize that, you know, before starting a business, you've got to consider the competition in the marketplace. Are you, do you have a niche uh, service or product that you're offering? You know, how many other people are in the business? How, how location-wise, how close are they to you? How accessible are they on the internet or Facebook? You need to look at that. The other thing that I think is important and I've learned over the years to use is business models. You know, is there someone out there that's doing what you're doing but at a distance? And can you mimic what they're doing to make yourself successful? Maybe not on the same scale, but on a similar scale. And I, I also think that uh, using the internet to do your research, attending trade shows like Equitanum to understand where your business plan and strategy will fit into the horse business as it is represented today. And, uh, you know, it's important that people, uh, and I've learned this the hard way watching people, they think they are going to make it in the horse business. And they're the ones that shouldn't have quit their day job because they just weren't cut out to be entrepreneurs. And that in itself uh, is a test that they have to pass, unfortunately, as they go through this experience. So, um, you know, then then it's as I've said uh, to many people, you know, they use an expression in real estate, 
where they talk about property values and saleability of property, location, location, location. And it's like if you have a business or you have a writing stable, uh, you're running a stable, you've got to be accessible uh, to people. And they need to you need to price and have your values uh, so that you're recovering your expenses, but at the same time, uh, make yourself affordable. So those are just a few of the things that need to be considered, you know, upfront before we, you know, get into a real strategy itself. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, I think the first strategy, sort of talked about it briefly earlier, was to make a business plan. So would you like to talk about the how we make the business plan? Yeah. Making a business plan is really number one, you know, and that means writing down on paper exactly what your goals and objectives are and developing a strategy on how you're going to initiate the business, how you're going to um, carry the business forward from year one to year three, year five. It also includes, uh, do I lease a building? Do I rent a horse farm or an existing farm? Can I start at my own stable? You know, how do I do this where I have sufficient amount of real estate or acreage, whatever the case happens to be, to allow me to start the business and then grow the business? And I think that it's vital that you put it in writing so that you, as you write it, you will think it. And it's there for you to jog your memory from time to time. And last but not least, you know, it's seek out opinions and help from others, whether it's accountants or business advisors or, you know, even people that are have been in the horse business for a number of years and ask them to give you some ideas and suggestions. Ask them, you know, how do I get this thing started? How do I keep it going? You know, what should I not do? That may be a more important question than what should I do, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and because if you know the things not to do, you're going to increase your opportunity for success, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I do. I think as you write it, you think it, but you're talking about, and I think you'll probably say this right through, is don't think that you've got to have all the answers yourself. You know, talk to people, ask them, listen to horse chats because there's lots of experts here who are giving this free information like Wayne and Wayne has already talked to us about coming back for further episodes. So I think, you know, certainly listen to those because he's an expert in his field. But where you can, and I know that starting up a business, you've always got to balance that budget. But I think asking experts, same as you would if you were out there competing, you'd be asking a coach and getting their advice. And I think with businesses, you've got to ask people, get their advice. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I mean, the second item is is that you have to have a written budget. Mm. You just can't fly by the seat of your pants. And this is an expression that we use that some people will do. You need to sit down and prepare a budget. Looking at your potential income, but especially your first year looking at your expenses. You know, do you have to have employees? How many employees do you have to train these employees? What is it going to cost to do all of that? And uh, as you start to put those numbers together, you need to then realize that most businesses 
are somewhere in a three to five year range before they have a profitable year. So are you prepared as you look at your budget and prepare your budget to be able to absorb break-even years for the year one, two, and three? You know, and if that's if you're unable to, then this should be pointed out to you as you put your budget together, then you may need to modify your business plan and strategy somewhat so that you're working in a relationship with that business plan and, and your budget. Uh, you're, you're trying to figure out how to make this work. And you, you really have to believe in what you're doing. Now, that means this is a part of the, it's not a part of the management strategy. It's a part of who you are. You've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe in what you're doing. And don't let that in the way of putting together a written budget. And I see this time and time again where people will not put together a strategy on paper, business plan, and won't put together a budget. They think they can do all this in their head. And I can tell you, it doesn't work. You know, it just doesn't work. Yes, and I think that's coming from an expert who's not just had one business but consults to, I don't know, hundreds or thousands of businesses around the globe. And if he's saying that he's seen it time and time again, then be realistic and put it into an annual written budget. I think the next one, you've got management strategy. Number three, Wayne, is to prepare an advertising and marketing strategy. And again, you know, you're looking at professionals probably like Sophie Barrington at Archer Creative or other professionals in your area, although Sophie's international anyway. Yeah, tell us a little bit about preparing an advertising and marketing strategy. Yeah, I mean, this becomes really critical because if no one knows you're there, so to speak, no one knows you're you're in business, you're not going to sell any products. And so you really need to sit down and look at what type of advertising. Do I go to print media? Do I go to horse needles or whatever magazine publication, uh, you know, to put some type of advertising in there? Do I use electronic media like Facebook or website page? Um, And then all of that, you know, ends up being a part of your budget that you have for your your, uh, startup. But you need to look at the options that are available to you. I mean, this may sound really silly, but uh, you know, a sign at the end of your drive, you know, if you're operating a breeding farm or a train stable or a riding stable, sometimes there's a license uh, from the community is necessary to post the sign. But that sign may be a thousand people drive past your driveway every day. And never knew what took place on your farm until you posted that sign. So there are a lot of things that are type of, are kind of simple from that point of view. The other one is, and this is one that I've, I've learned many, many, many years ago, and that is the demographics of the media where you're going. Find out who the audience is for that media, who reads it, uh, what the pass along rate is, if it's print media. Uh, if it's uh, obviously the internet, uh, you can look at all types of data on there that's captured on people that look at your website. So uh, this is where a lot of times professional outside assistance is necessary. Um, and that, that a lot of people, including myself, 
you know, can't uh, do all of it. And we have to depend on someone else that that's what their specialty is. So um, advertising and marketing will make you successful or not. And uh, it's vital that that be included in your first three management strategies. Yes, yes. Okay, now the next one, and I know that people, especially if they're cutting down on costs, they might cut this out, but you would have seen it, people operating without the proper licenses, permits and insurance. So I'm sure, you know, this is management strategy number four. I'm sure you could tell us some stories. So that is operate with the proper licenses, permits and insurances. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you stories that are not very uh, nice, you know, and, and uh you know, like, for example, if you're operating a boarding stable, you want insurance that deals with care, custody, and control of someone else's horses. Um, some uh, municipalities require that you have licenses for operating a business, regardless if it's an agricultural-based business, but it, it is a business within uh, in the zoning of the uh, municipality. So those those all become important because what the next step is, if you operate without them, is that you get into trouble. Uh, someone gets hurt or someone reports uh, that you are operating this business uh, improperly. You're going to end up going to court or paying fines or doing something that's going to uh, jeopardize the future and potential for your business. Uh, the other one that, that's associated with this is, uh, you know, is having contracts or lease agreements, developing employee relations that, that all fit into this same puzzle. And uh, it's important that you comply if you have employees with all of the, the human resource requirements that are associated with uh, having employees. And then... Uh, as I say on uh, in my notes here, that you know, don't forget the government compliances, mm-hmm. and uh, that that could be anything from. Uh, uh, we have problems here in the United States with uh, uh, wetlands and doing things in areas that we should not do with horses, for example. So, uh, you know, we need to look at the whole picture, but. Having the licenses and the permits and insurances up front should give you a lot of confidence to say, you know, we've done everything we possibly can to shore up this business from a legal point of view. And now we're really looking forward to getting involved and doing what we like to do, and that is selling a product or selling a service or boarding horses or teaching or whatever the case happens to be. And that is part of the problem is, is people want to do the fun part. It's the hard part. It's the business part that a lot of people ignore because it's not so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is where people need to look at, do I need to work in the horse industry or have my own business? And it may be that if they prefer to do certain parts of the industry, they either pay someone to do the parts they don't like or work for someone in a role just doing the parts that they do like. No, you're exactly right. That's that's really a valid, very important point. Mm. I agree. The next one, you've got um, management strategy number five, is to recognize and follow the horse industry's established standards. Yeah, and I think that, that people need to realize that 
there are no professional guidelines uh, in many parts of the world for some aspects of the horse industry. And yet, if we use uh, Equestrian Australia you know, and the guidelines that come there for show rules, animal welfare, and that type of thing, the issues of risk management that are associated with putting on events, you know, there are standards there that you have to that you have to achieve. But there are other aspects of the horse industry, depending upon which area you choose to work in. There are no standards, and I know that Australia has been working on establishing standards and conduct codes um, for horse management, horse farms, and I have seen where some of that was published here in the last 12 months, and I can't recite the exact website on it, Glennis, but I've, I've been following it. It'd probably be the, the Australian Horse Industry Council's website is probably the one to go to, and then um, yeah, there's different yeah. links within each state. Yeah. So I think if you just Google Australian Horse Industry Council or AHIC, and you'll find that, yeah. I think it's important, but there's some good information that's coming out there, and I've been monitoring it. Uh, not just because of uh, talking to you, but it's just I, I, I found it quite interesting because the country of Australia is doing things, I think, that's far superior to what we're doing here in the United States on a national basis. We tend to have uh, compartmentalized the horse industry into smaller uh, segments, whereas in your country, some overall established standards for doing business, if you will. Yeah, look, I think the Australian Horse Industry Council actually came about because it was either an outbreak of Hendra or an outbreak, I think it was Hendra or equine flu, and um, because the horse industry was so fragmented, that's when the Australian Horse Industry Council was formed. But it wasn't always. It was fragmented, and it was because of a problem that it was formed, you know, like you talk about problems and, and, oh, gee, we've got a problem, but sometimes the problem is the solution, forms the solution. That's true. And then so I remember the flu outbreak when it was about 10 years ago there, I think, mm. something like that. And I think we're the only was, country uh, in the world that's dead. actually had equine flu and got rid of it. Right, right. So I think that, uh, you know, you need to understand what the standards are for the practices associated with your business, even if you're running riding lessons. Mm. Uh, you know, there's certain practices that you need to follow uh, that in teaching, regardless yeah. of uh, what your personal feelings are. You know, you need to live up to those. And we've got far more scientific testing and standardization today than we ever had before. And some of this even relates to the welfare and care of the horses and, you know, whether you're, and especially if you're training, you know, and the types of bits and the types of training uh, harness and uh, equipment that you use. You know, I mean, you really need to stop and think twice about a lot of this and, and not just go on gut reaction, but, you know, be aware, be involved in what your industry is doing, which is not necessarily a management strategy here per se. But uh, to me, it's important that you, you know, participate in, in local associations, clubs, your, your national uh, organization, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I might advise clients of mine that 
you know what, if you're going to invest in this industry, you need to be a part of the decision-making process to protect your investment. And that tends to follow with the same strategy here. Mm -hmm. The um, management strategy number six is you've got to establish safety protocols and procedures for all business activities. Yeah, and I think that this this is uh, something that we tend to uh, uh, push off and say, oh, we don't have to worry about it. But it is becomes essential, in my opinion, in a lot of the cases, lost lawsuits that I see here in the United States. Um, many of the riding stables, the rentals and trekking businesses, they have no protocols and procedures for conducting their riding programs. And uh, it is it is the reason why they're being sued in many cases. They need to create some type of written documents or manuals for the staff to use uh, to help to train the staff and help for the staff to sustain uh, an ongoing awareness of the important role of risk management. So, uh, you know, and I'm talking about riding stables, but... I've also put on here, how about horse transportation? What do you do? What should you not do? You know, I mean, in dealing with the transportation, event management, the same thing. And yet some of that risk management associated with event management uh, is guided by Australian law and, and equestrian Australia. Uh, it still doesn't mean that you it means that you should do it. <laughs> Don't ignore it. It's a simple answer. And uh, we, you know, I've seen people that tried to ignore it, and it's definitely not the way to conduct your business. Yep, yep. The management strategy number seven, and I'm thinking that it, it sort of goes on. You know, you've got established safety protocols, and one thing you talked about was, you know, loss of lawsuits because there wasn't written procedures in place. But I think sometimes people start off with a horse business, they know what the procedures are, but then they get the staff who come in that don't follow the same procedures that they might in the first place. So would these two be related together if we've got number seven, conduct staff training programs? Yeah, they really are, and and I, I can give you a firsthand example here on our farm. Uh, you know, if we uh, leave, we need to leave someone in charge. And I've had people come and say, yes, I'm experienced with horses, and I know how to do this, that, one thing, another. Yes, I've driven a tractor, blah, blah, blah. So we we have deliberately started doing a couple of things, one of which is we put a horse in a stall and the horse has no halter on and uh, tell him what we'd like for him to do is to enter the horse's stall, put a halter on the horse, lead the horse out the stall and put it in the cross ties and then put it back in the stall. Well, that is absolutely amazing. (laughs) (laughs) What we have seen, I mean, it just is scary. You know they don't. They don't even understand how to approach a horse from the horse's left, and and uh, place the halter on the horse, and then leading the horse. They don't make sure you know the door's not open fully for the stall door, and and I grant our environment here is a little bit different. All of these things contribute to the fact that they're not representing themselves honestly and fairly, and unless. You basically test them. You'll never know. Mm, yes. Yep. 
And so uh, that's an important part of it. But then, you know, it's like continuing on with the strategy where uh, once they're there, yeah, you need to talk to them about first aid and emergency preparedness, you know, and, and in your case, the issues with uh, bushfires, you know, and I think they're probably uh, scary when I see and what I read from over there. You know, all of that needs to be a part of a training program. Uh, and just as you said, it is somewhat com- combined with, with number six, but Training is one thing. Having established protocols or, and procedures is something else. Yep, yep. Going on then to management strategy number eight, you've got established an ethical standard for the health, humane treatment and well-being for all horses. Right, and that becomes, that, that comes back to just, you know, a lot of things. Everything from the horse trainer conducting his or her business in such a way that the horse is humanely treated and not abused in the training process. And that becomes critical because you never know who's going to drive in your driveway and observe what you're doing. And uh, the, the other aspect of it is if you have employees and horses standing out in the sun with, with no water and no shade, Somebody has to step up and say, you know what, I need to take care of this horse. I need to move it to a different environment where it can graze or have access to hay. It can have fresh water, something to that effect. You know, once again, um, people that don't know anything about horses, I find today are very critical of what we do with horses, even though some of which is traditional. But when you go to the extremes that I'm talking about, where the horse has got no shade, no no water, um, and granted, a lot of your horses there, all they have for shade is a rug. And I'm, I'm, I chuckle as I say that because I I learned early on in my travels that that's horse stable in many cases, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, what about the, the bald-faced horse that's got the white or pink skin and is blistered and not being protected by some type of sunscreen or whatever the case happens to be. And, you know, all of that impacts on the perception of how you're caring for your horses. Yep, yep. And, and I think this particularly comes up in, um, you know, boarding stables or what we call adjustment or I suppose the UK would call livery, is that people might come in and, you know, board or adjust or keep their horse the horse may not be cared of. So the horse owner, the proprietor might be caring for their horses, but then this other person comes in who's not caring and it becomes the culture if you ignore it. You've got to, if someone's not caring for their horse, sometimes it is out of ignorance, but you've got to actually say, you know, this horse has got to be on a feeding program or else it leaves, you know, and even though it may become a loss of business, you've got to say horses on this property are well cared for and if they're not, they're not welcome here. And say to the owners, you either, totally you either sort your horse out or it's got to leave. Yep. I totally, totally agree. And, and Gladys, let me tell you, this also gets back to the point that perhaps I should have included earlier, but we're, the topic's so broad. But, you know, you need to have some type of, of contract or a written agreement with that person that's bringing a horse on the premises where you have the right to ask them to remove the horse or take care of the horse in a proper manner. 
you know, it's in writing so that it's clear in the, from the get-go yep. the owner's responsibility. And uh, we have situations here where people may use, I think it's, it's now situations uh, in your part of the world also, where people may bring their horse, but it's uh, one of these self-care where the horse is, has a, as a paddock, but uh, the owner of the horse uh, has to provide the hay, grain, and yes, daily care. Yes, we do of, that a lot. You know. Yep. Yeah. And so that in itself creates a, a different environment. And, you know, who's ultimately responsible, the professional or, or the, the, the horse owner, if you will, and most of those are amateurs. Mm. So it's, this gets back to that, you know, what I, I really believe is animal welfare. You know, mm. the human humane treatment of the horses, and I think the professionals got a duty of care to the horse. They do. Mm. I agree. You're absolutely right. It doesn't matter where in the world we're talking. There is a duty of care. You're yeah. you're so right. The management strategy number nine is to recognise the importance of the environment where the horse business is conducted. So you talked earlier on about location. So tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think we're going to see that more and more probably uh, in your country as well as here. It's that times go on is the riding stable has been there for a number of years and the development of housing is encroaching on that environment where that stable or farm has been. And we run into issues um, uh, periodically where, People move in as neighbors, and it's all, all wonderful because there's a horse farm next door. And then suddenly we run into the problem that the horses have this horrible odor coming from the farm. And uh, there is, uh, you know, there are other issues which we refer to as attractive nuisances where young people are going to hop the fence and go out and pet the horse or do something. You know, I mean, all of this comes into into play that, that we have to, you know, work with our community as well as with our neighbors um, and trying to maintain a positive relationship, you know, from that point of view. And the other one is, is that if you're trekking or if you're involved in uh, uh, trail riding or other activities associated with that, you know, it's, it's sustaining the wilderness trails that you're using so that you're not abusing the land, uh, contamination of water is becoming a, an important issue. And I think it's going to be a global issue. You know, do you have your muck pile in such a place that it doesn't drain directly into a water source and contaminate that water source, whether it be a dam or a flowing creek or stream? So, you know, that all of those things come into play. It just makes you a good steward of the land, if you will. Mm-hmm. I think you said earlier on that even with the business plan, it's going to move all the time. It's a dynamic document. So I think you might even have a checklist. I've got this, 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 this. It's a matter of going back over it, isn't it? Just going over it again yeah, and it saying, is-, is there anything else I can change? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's exactly right. It is dynamic, and it's no different than your budget because the budgets can change according to how the year works out. You may plan it one way, uh, and yet you have to go another way to sustain or try to achieve your goal because something may happen like your supplier of goods and services that you are 
packaging and reselling or whatever. Or if you had certain people providing lessons at your stable, uh, you know, you you may have to make adjustments because they didn't work out the way you wanted them to, and you had to hire two people or you had to hire somebody that you have to pay more to, you know, all of that becomes dynamic, you know? Yep. Yep. And that also brings us on to number 10, which is participate in professional improvement programs, because I think as you grow and improve yourself and you'll learn more about running a horse business and decreasing the risks in the horse business that might cause you, you might go to a workshop and learn more and then go, ah, maybe I should relook at, you know, where the muck pile is or where I've got something associated or where this is related to that. Maybe I need to look at procedures. So that would be the last one is participate in professional improvement programs. Yeah. And I and I think that that becomes more important as some of us uh, gain more experience, more gray hair in the business. So it's to stay in touch with our roots. And one thing about continuing education, a lot of times it does get us back to our roots, but it also introduces new topics, new opportunities, and basically maybe modified or new different or new or different ways of doing business. Um, we learn new things about the treatment of horses, uh, the handling of horses. And, yeah, we tend to say, you know, we know how to do this. We've done it this way for how many years? But I think that a good top professional is going to have an open mind and look at all the opportunities as, as the world changes. And, you know, there's still a great deal of equine research being conducted around uh, the world today um, and looking at uh, behavior, especially, and you, we talked about this the last show, uh, this whole issue of animal behavior is, in my opinion, uh, it's about time we talked about it and uh, especially dealing with the horse. So uh, continuing education, just like a, a physician, a doctor, a veterinarian, and uh, lawyers, uh, barristers and so forth, you know, they're, they're required to have continuing education. And so you know, what's the difference? If you're a professional in the horse business, guess what? You should be involved in that type of uh, continuing ed uh, yourself and, yep. you know, dedicate some hours each year to doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think before you said, you know, even science is showing us a lot more than what we ever used to know, you know, just keeping up the latest science and the latest procedures, you know, even though the horse themselves may not change. I think the horse, the way that we can look after them and care for them and train them is changing so much that it's going to ultimately help the horse if you continue to increase your education. Yeah, and I think that minus one of the things, for example, you know, is periodically new pharmaceuticals come out and we may come up with a new method of uh, treating internal parasites with horses or yep. doing something of that nature. The other one uh, is dealing with ulcers, whereas we seem to you know, identify that we've got more horses with ulcers today. Mm. Looking at ways of preventing it, looking at ways of treating it and, and sustaining the horse after it has been treated. You know, I mean, all of that, you know, yes, you can depend on your veterinarian. But you're the day-to-day eyes. You're the day-to-day management in many of these different uh, segments of the industry. And as a result of it, 
you've got to be on top of at least what's going on or know how to connect with someone that has the answers if you don't. Yep, yep. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. All right. Now, I think just in summary, we've got all these 10 ways to decrease your risk in the horse business will be on Wayne's page. It'll be horsechats.com slash Hipsley 2 or just go to horsechats.com and search for Wayne or search for Hipsley and you'll find that. But Wayne, if people would like to contact you direct, would you like to talk about that? And because there's a lot of information you've given us here, you know, so they might want to contact you direct and ask you some questions or get you to confirm something. What are your contact details? Probably the best way to get in touch with me is by way of email because of the distance. And then we, if we become necessary, we can certainly do that by way of telephone. But uh, my uh, email address is my last name. It's Hipsley with the word A-N-D uh, followed by A-S-S-O-C-S at AOL.com. So it's it's abbreviated in in computer ease, Hipsley and Associates at AOL.com. And I'm I'm happy to try to answer questions and I even uh, will throw this at Planet uh, I get just from time to time on Facebook under my name. So I'm I'm trying I'm happy to help people. Um, you. it's you know if I can't if I can't give you an answer, I'll find somebody that can <laughs> give you the right answer. But yeah. You know, I believe in I Part of my problem in dealing with people is, is I do not believe in just giving them uh, anything but the truth or the facts that I know to be true, uh, because there are a lot of folks out there that make up answers that don't make sense and get in trouble. So, yeah. you know, I try to do the best I can. And, and Wayne, I think that people will appreciate, you know, that you said, I'll help you with the answer, and if I can't, I'll refer you to someone who can. So... I think just yeah. the fact that you say that already, we know you're coming in with integrity that even though you might lose some business, you'll refer them on to someone else because that's the best thing to do. Oh, yeah, and I, and Glenn, I'll be quite honest with you. I mean, I, I, I do a lot of that just to help people. There's no charge for it. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, if it gets to a, where it looks like it's turning into me being employed, uh, that's a whole different story. But yeah, a lot of times people will, you know, for an opinion and now it's free. It's my opinion. And yeah, you, know, you do that as best you can. So mm-hmm. no, that's great. happy to do that. Good, good. All right, Wayne, as usual, it's wonderful talking to you. I'm really looking forward to going through and talking to you some more and and sort of having a series of chats to just help people with their horse business because I think there's a lot of, you know, you've got a lot of knowledge, a lot of background there. So, um, yeah, good to talk to you. Good to talk to you too. And uh, I have an expression that I say at the end of all my emails and that is uh, let's go and grow. And, uh, you know, if we work together, we can grow, you know? Yep. Perfect. Thanks, Wayne. Thank you. Have a good evening. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. 
registered training organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 